So is God angry with sinners? Does God hate sinners? Does God love sinners? What do we tell a lost person? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, yesterday we talked politics from a spiritual perspective. Today we are going to talk theology, but friends, in a way that intersects with our culture, in a way that intersects with the world around us. This is Michael Brown. Number to call with a theological, biblical question or cultural, political question or comment, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. What do we tell a lost sinner? We're sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't know the Lord. Do we tell them how much God loves them? Do we tell them how angry God is with them over their sin? Do we tell them God hates them? Is it a combination of of several different things that we tell them? Does it depend on the state of mind of that person? If they're repentant and humble and open and ready to turn, is that different than if they're in hard-hearted rebellion? What do we say to a lost sinner? Now, uh, this past weekend, Pastor Rich Wilkerson was preaching at a gathering for Kanye West, one of his Sunday services. I've just read that Kanye had said that he's not going to be putting out any more secular music, only gospel music. I hope his conversion is true. I hope it's real. I hope it's deep. Uh, if it is real and deep, then we have to remember At best, he's a brand new believer. He's a baby believer. There's no such thing as a celebrity saint. We are are all servants. There there is one that we worship and honor and adore. And I wrote about this the other day saying, let's let's not think wrongly about people. If they come to faith in their celebrities, let's protect them. Let's let's do our best to uh, look to seasoned leaders to speak into their lives and be fathers and mothers to them spiritually. And let's remember that in heaven— in, in God's kingdom, the angels are not saying, oh, c- cool, Kanye, man, he got saved. That's special. No, one sinner who repents causes the angels to rejoice. And it's not like they're gathering together. Oh, could we get a selfie with this one or without all of us lost sinners needing to be saved? Once we're saved, we are now sons and daughters of God, servants of God. He alone is the one that we worship and adore and bow down before and lean on and look to. All right. So we We keep our proper perspective, but Pastor Rich Wilkerson, who I read married Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, and has been a friend of the family, a friend of Justin Bieber, so you'd call him a pastor to the celebrities. He was preaching at the Sunday service and saying that Jesus was the the only way, based on John 14, 6, and made this statement. I, I don't have the whole statement, but the relevant part. He said, he's not mad at you. So he's talking to lost people. He's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Get a new narrative. It's way bigger than that. He came to make dead people alive in him. Let's let's just look at this for another moment. Before we focus on the beginning here, he's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. Let's look at the rest of the statement. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Well, in terms of he didn't come 
to get people who are bad. Now you improve your life, you become good. It is way bigger than that. Now, certainly through the gospel, bad people become good. Certainly through the gospel, mean, angry, hateful, violent, rebellious, abusive people become kind, loving, gracious people. Certainly he transforms us. All right. But yes, it is bigger than that. Just behavioral change. It is far bigger. He came to make dead people alive in him. Absolutely true. Outside of Jesus, we are dead in our sins. Outside of Jesus, we are lost. Outside of Jesus, we have no hope. We cannot save ourselves. In a billion trillion lifetimes, we can never, ever, ever, ever save ourselves. It's not possible. We are dead in our sins. Doesn't mean incapable of any response. It means spiritually separated from God. Dead is a metaphor. The prodigal son said, I was dead, but now, uh, the father said, he was dead, but now is alive. Speaking of the prodigal son, Revelation 2, Jesus tells those who are spiritually dead, wake up. All right. So a dead person can't wake up in themselves. So we are dead in sin. We are separated from God. But in ourselves, we will always rebel. We will always turn away. We have to be drawn by grace. And then we can make the choice to say yes or no to God's grace or mercy. But what about the statement that God's not mad at you? He's madly in love with you. Before we parse that, let me remind you that there is a man-centric gospel. I'm not saying this was, okay? I'm not saying that, but I want to say something else. There is a me-centric gospel, a human-based gospel, a gospel that puts us in the central place rather than God in the central place and puts our decision on the highest pedestal as opposed to God's decision. It is a gospel that has infected America for decades and has brought us to where we are today. It has helped bring us to the place where we are today. Over 50 years ago, A.W. Tozer contrasted the old cross with the new cross. And he said, whereas the old cross killed the sinner, the new cross redirects the sinner. The old cross said, death, you come to Jesus, you die. You die to your sin, you die to yourself, you die to your ambition, your goals, your plans. You die and you say, Lord, here I am. You, you now live a new life in him. Maybe your plan, like mine, was to be a rock star, a drug abusive rock star. I died to that. Lord, here I am. Send me. Use me. What if you plan to be a medical doctor? That's a good thing. A drug abusing rock star is not a good thing. What if you plan to be a, a medical doctor? That's a good thing. But that may have been your plan when you come to the Lord. Lord, here I am. Whatever you want from my life. There is a death to the old beginning of something new. So A.W. Tozer said, that's what the old cross did. The, the new cross, it redirects the sinner. Let's take a new path. Well, that was over 50 years ago, and it's gotten much worse since then. The gospel is now about unlocking your destiny and your future so that you can have the life of your dreams. Well, the life of your dreams may be very different than the life of God's plans. All right? And I've updated things to say that the contemporary cross does not kill the sinner, does not redirect the sinner, but empowers the sinner. It's about making you into a bigger and better you. Jesus died so you could be a bigger and better version of you. No, that is not the gospel. I've often said that the contemporary gospel starts here. This is who I am. This is how I feel. God is here to please me. The biblical gospel says, this is who God is. This is how God feels. 
and we are here to please him. There is a world of difference, the difference between heaven and hell, the difference between life and death, the difference between salvation and damnation, between those two messages and two emphases. But we have so long preached a me-centered gospel, a person-centered gospel, as opposed to a Jesus-centered gospel, that we've gotten deeply off track. The idea of telling people to pick up their cross and follow Jesus, the idea of telling people deny yourself and follow Jesus, the idea of telling people they're under God's judgment and wrath and need to flee to him to be saved. This is so foreign to so many of us. We have gone from one extreme to the other. The one extreme of just beating sinners up as if God hated them and despised them and wanted nothing better than to cast them into hell. Going to the extreme, the other extreme where God just wants everybody so lonely in heaven. If you'll just sit with him, he'll be happy. A.W. Tozer also said that the whole idea of, of making Jesus your Lord or even receiving him. Yes, the Bible says as many as received him, John 1, he gave power to become the sons of God. Yes, we do receive him. But the way we often preach it and make Jesus your Lord as if you are going to put him in a new position can be very misleading. And Tozer said it's it's almost like he's standing there hat in hand. Like, will you? Will you let me in? I'm knocking at the door here and it's cold and rainy out. And if you just open up the door and let me in, we could be friends. That's not the gospel. We are under divine judgment We are under divine wrath, but God loves us so deeply, yes, so madly, so intensely, that he sent his son to die for us. Here's a verse you don't hear quoted a whole lot, maybe not one of the verses that you've memorized. It is Psalm 7, verse 12. You may see it as verse 11 in some versions, but same verse, just different different numbering, all right? Uh, Oh, let's see. Read it from the King James. God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. ESV, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. NIV, God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. NET, God is a just judge. He is angry throughout the day. New Jewish version, God vindicates the righteous. So that would be a different reading. Shofet Sadiq, he vindicates the righteous, but he pronounces doom. God pronounces doom every day. TLV, God is a righteous judge, a God who is indignant every day. John the Immerser, John the Baptist said in John 3.36 that the one that has the son has life. The one that does not, the wrath of God abides on him. So on the one hand, God looks at a sinning world and he is angry at the sin and rebellion of this world. In that sense, you could say he is indignant every day. Yes. How, would, how, how do you feel when you hear about evil taking place? How do you feel about it? I was driving yesterday, coming home, and a, a car, uh, there was a really, 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 really long turning lane in the left lane. All right. I was over in the right this guy was in, was in the middle, long, long turning lane. And, and I'm watching as he goes from the middle lane and cuts people off and goes in the left lane. So rather than stay online waiting with everybody else, which would have been two or three light cycles, he cuts in front, which also means someone else doesn't get through. And I thought, what a shame there wasn't a cop there to give him a ticket at that moment. And I thought, from God's perspective, 
How many trillions of things does he see every single day that deserve judgment, that deserve punishment? But some of them, not this minor little thing like that, but some of them ugly and wicked and despicable. How does he feel when when he looks down at, at someone abusing a little child or selling a child into into sex trafficking, how does he how does he feel when he looks down and sees the sin and rebellion of the human race and people knowingly, willingly hurting and destroying and murdering each other? God is angry with sin, and God is angry with sinners, and His wrath, in that sense, hovers over them, and yet He so deeply, deeply loves them that he sent his son to die for the sins of the world. What an amazing message. We are guilty under the wrath of God, yet he sent his son to save us and redeem us and make us his children and wash our slate clean. What a message. We'll be right back. Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire. Friends, I'm convinced that the biggest problem in America is not the sinful state of the nation, is not the political divide, is not the myriad of other problems that we have in our society. The biggest issue, the biggest problem is the state of the church As I've said for many years, I'm not so much concerned with the presence of darkness, but with the absence of light. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884 is the number to call. And phone lines are open for your general Bible questions, for things you want to get back to me on. Phones are always open for the critics. You say, well, Mike, why don't you take their calls when they call in? Because they don't. They don't. You know how many times I've opened the phone to critics? You know how many times I post saying critics are welcome? YouTube chats, you're welcome. Join it. You know how rarely it is that I hear from them? How rarely, 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 and how few of them ever reach out and say, hey, I have questions I'd like to ask you off the air, or I'd like to dialogue with you privately, or I'd like to have a public debate with you. I'm talking about someone, not just anyone that calls in. Not just anyone that emails, because everyone would like to debate, or many people would like to debate, but I'm talking about someone that, that is a representative of their position, that has a following, that, that would be a, a fair debate where you're comparing apples with apples. It's the rarest of rare, rare, rare that I hear from people. Some of them have my personal contact info, and I don't hear from them. In, in any case, in any case, the phone lines are open for friends and for non-friends, all right? 866-34-TRUTH. One other thing. Many of you are so kind and gracious. Dr. Brown, I love you. I've been following you for years, but I have a difference here. That's perfectly fine. I don't expect everyone to agree with me on everything all the time. Uh, if, if we did, we all agreed on everything all the time, we'd have to scratch our heads like something's funny here because there's just too many possible areas where we're going to see something differently somewhere. So I appreciate you being gracious. It's, it's not offensive to me to say you differ on a given point. 866-34-TRUTH. But before I go to the phones, let me reiterate this. The greatest, most pressing need in America today is for the church to wake up, for God's people to have a fresh encounter with God, for us to, to know him more deeply and be separated to him more, more seriously. 
and to have a broken heart for a lost and dying world. So as we are changed, that immediately will bring change in the environment around us. As we are changed, that will immediately bring positive change because we'll be living differently. All right. Our light will be shining more. Yes, it'll bring persecution, opposition, dissent. That's going to happen also. But let it be for the gospel. And then when we begin sharing the gospel with the lost, when people who don't know the Lord begin to come to faith, whoa, what could be more wonderful than that? What better weapon other than prayer, spiritual weapon, what better weapon for changing the world has God given us than evangelism? I mean, my my number one, number one point, if I had to make a list of top 10 things we can do to change whatever nation we live in, number one, prayer. We go to God, we seek him earnestly, we cry out to him. We cry out till the answer comes, and we keep crying out once it comes. That's number one. Number two, we, we repent of our own sins. We get right with God, and we, have experience, we experience fresh revival in our own lives. Number three, we reach out to the lost. And we do those three things. I don't care what nation you put us in. We will see fruit. We will see change. And then a nation like America, where we have so many tens of millions of believers, we could see a radical shaking in America overnight. All right, let us go to the phones. Eugene in Oklahoma. Yes, I remember our call on Friday. Somehow your call dropped. So thanks for getting back to us today. Welcome back, man. Are you there, Eugene? Can you hear me? Hello? I can hear you. Go ahead. Yes, sir. So what's amazing is that the the context of, uh, at least the title of your your message today is actually... um, Refer a lot to do with the question I had last week, sir. And um, I've been following Paul Washer for a little bit now. He's a great repentance teacher. Um, I'm not reformed myself, and I've kind of noticed some things that he's been teaching. I've kind of never really heard a whole lot about. Um, he'll talk a lot about the wrath of God, and the church in America, at least, has done a poor job of really teaching what the wrath of God is like. They, they do a really good job of under, understanding God's love, but I don't understand his wrath exactly. So... One of the things I guess the Reform area kind of believes in, um, they would point to scriptures like Psalms chapter 5, verse 5, and at the end, um, at the end of that verse, it says that God hates evildoers, essentially. And um, I kind of don't really know how to understand that, like if that can affect how I witness, like, um, does God hate sinners? And if not, I know there is a distinction between the love that God has for His children and the love that He has for a sinner. But what is that distinction, and, and how do I understand that concerning the wrath of God? Because it does say that he hates evildoers, or I guess I'm not understanding it correctly, sir. Right. So, uh, number one, I absolutely agree with what Paul Washer is saying in terms of the fact that the Church in America has not preached adequately on the wrath of God, broadly speaking. That, uh, again, there may be individual exceptions or pockets of exception, but... By and large, we have neglected the message. We might talk sometimes about the return of the Lord, but even then, it, it's, it's not an emphasis on him coming in fire. We may talk about hell and final judgment. Sometimes when we do it, we do it in a way that, that doesn't adequately represent God's heart, almost like he's some vindictive guy that says, oh, I can't wait to destroy everybody. But by and large, we have swung so far to emphasizing God's love and goodness that we've largely forgotten about his wrath. And I would encourage all of my listeners and viewers now to do a little study. Just take out your English Bible and click on a word wrath. I'm sure you can easily search for it. You may get the Greek word that comes up for it. And you just do a little search 
and see how often this theme occurs in the New Testament. See how often Paul talks about it in his letters. The wrath of God is coming on the disobedient. The wrath of God is coming on the disobedient. This is real, and it must happen. There is so much wickedness and so much evil that does not get punished in this world that God must punish it to be judged, to be just, and to be righteous, and, and to be a judge worthy of that name. So what about his stance towards the lost? A, a Calvinist might say that the reprobate, the non-elect, are hated by God, and the elect are loved by God. So the elect in their sin are still under God's wrath, vessels of wrath, according to Ephesians 2, but through grace are now saved, but always object of God's love. And the non-elect are always objects of God's hatred, his rejection. A Reformed person might say it like that, but it's certainly not my perspective. And when I read in, in Psalm 5.5, 5, uh, for example, um, it, it's, it's not just talking about the 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 elect versus the, the non-elect. It's, it's a general statement that's being made there. Um, so when it says at the end of verse 6 in Hebrew or 5 in some of our English translations, Saneta kol pole aven, literally you hate all workers of iniquity. That's not just speaking about the, the non-elect. This is saying this is God's stance towards them. So the way I look at it is it may seem overly simplistic, but... Basically this, he hates them and he loves them, meaning he utterly deplores their conduct. He utterly deplores who they are and what they're doing. And and there is a sense of revulsion towards that. And yet he deeply loves that person to the point that he would send his son to die for them. That is one of the people for whom Jesus died. And when we were enemies in our mind by wicked works, as, as Paul describes it in Ephesians and Colossians, when we were in our rebellion, while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. Christ died for us. So, Eugene, to me, it's, it's both and, at the same time that there is a profound love that God has for the human race. And it breaks his heart that we are perishing. It breaks his heart that we who were created in his image, we for whom Christ died, are messing up our lives and destroying our lives and defiling our lives. It is, it is grievous to him, uh, even more than a parent would be grieved over a child that they raised and poured their lives into and then seeing that child going completely self-destructive ways. It's grievous, and a parent will have great, incredible, profound love. At the same time, God being perfect in justice and perfect in righteousness absolutely hates the conduct and hates who that person is at that time. So there is both a hate and a love. For God, I believe they can be be maintained side by side if we rightly understand them. But the revelation that comes through the cross is for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's that's the revelation that we emphasize through the cross. Yes, sir. And, and uh, just just real quick, if I understand you, your perspective on there being both a love and a hate is because you don't believe in limited atonement. But I believe that the reform typically would. That's why they could kind of reject that statement you made and say, well, this is why I believe he hates the sinners, because he never died for them in the first place. So your position on God's love still being there is because of the cross. If I'm yes, be, be, because of the cross, but also because of the Old Testament revelation that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
but rather that they yes. turn and live. That's a revelation from the Old Testament where, where he says, if only you had obeyed my commandments, that, that he's, he's grieved over them, not that he wants them to. As Jesus says in Revelation 23 about Jerusalem and Jewish leaders, how often I, I wanted to gather you together as, your, as a hen gathers her chicks in her wings, but you were not willing. He grieves over that. And again, the very verse that's quoted, Psalm 5, which is one of the few view, verses that make that overt statement, says he hates all workers of iniquity, not just the non-elect workers of iniquity, all right, but all workers of iniquity. So okay. it, it, in a yeah. verse like that, yeah, the, the reform explanation doesn't work with all respect to James White, Dr. White, who's probably listening as he's riding his bike. Keep your eyes on the road, man. Keep your eyes on the road. You can correct me on your DL show, except you can't because I'm staying with Scripture here. All right, friends, we'll be right back with more calls, more theology, more word. God of light, hear our cry. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Friends, there will be no moral and cultural revolution in society without a moral and cultural revolution in the church. There will be no radical change in the society without radical change in the church. There will be no turning things right side up in the world without turning things right side up in the church. The change, the transformation must begin with us, must begin with you, must begin with me. Friends, there, there is no political solution. There is no social band-aid. There, there is no simple way. To, it's, it's not going to happen through our voting, although voting is important. It's not going to happen through our political activism, although there's a place for that. It's not going to happen through our social good works, although there is absolutely a place for that. It will happen when we freshly encounter God. 866-34-TRUTH. Phone lines are open for all kinds of questions, comments, interaction. And I'll go to the phones in a minute. A few years ago, I was being driven to a meeting or to a TV shoot by Daniel Kalenda's assistant. Daniel Kalenda is a graduate of our ministry school and leads Christ for All Nations, the successor to Reinhard Bonnke. And Daniel's assistant, who himself is an evangelist out preaching now, Daniel said to me, how do you maintain humility before God when you get a lot of people saying good things about you and so on, how do you maintain humility? And then, of course, you get criticized, attacked on the other side. So I, w- I wanted the answer to be meaningful. I wanted to do my best to answer him in a quality way. So I spent a few minutes talking to him. And at the end, he goes, wow, Dr. Brown, that was really helpful. He said, I asked Reinhardt the same question. And Reinhardt said, when you're on your knees, the praise and the criticism go over your head. And I thought, boy, it's, it's so simple. Reinhardt, in a few words, said something much better than I could say. But I was thinking of Reinhardt's words today when I was in prayer. Because as you know, I get criticized and attacked from every level. It's, it's part of the calling, comes with the turf. And, and for all of us as believers, followers of Jesus, there's going to be opposition. Because God calls me to take on a lot of controversies and, 
and address issues that are controversial in the world and in the church. It seems just by my calling, I stir up a lot of opposition and it gets pretty intense and pretty wild. And the words fly and the accusations fly and the ugly things fly and the death wishes fly and whatever. And for the most part, because it's part of my calling and because there's grace on me for it and because a lot of people pray for me, I feel shielded. I feel blessed. I feel joy in the midst of the attack. But sometimes I feel the ugliness of the dart. Sometimes I feel the ugliness of the attack. You feel like you're getting slimed on. You just feel like junk's coming at you from every angle. And I was praying today, just sensing afresh the need to take refuge in the Lord. And I got such a clear mental picture laying on my face before God. All that junk was just flying over me. That that's the place of refuge. That's the place of safety. Spiritually speaking, the bullets go flying over your head. And with that, the praise of man that could inflate. I don't mean encouragement that's healthy. But the praise of man that could inflate in a negative way, that that also just goes over our heads. So if we as God's people would give ourselves to prayer, if we as God's people would, would look for him in that secret place, which, as, as one author points out, is there the moment we separate ourselves to God in prayer, but that, that we have access to the, the holiest place of all through the blood of Jesus— and, and, and we have confidence to come because we've been cleansed, we've been washed, all right? So when, when we go into that sacred place in God, there is refuge, there is strength, there is renewal, there is conviction, there, there is encouragement, there's correction, there's everything that we need. And, and you might say, I'm working two jobs just to get by, or I've got four kids under five, and plus I'm tired all the time. I don't have three hours to get along. I understand that. Can you commune with God when you drive to work? Can you commune with God as you're changing diapers? Can you commune with God? Just talk to him through the day. Open your heart. He's near to the brokenhearted. And, and a practice Nancy had when the kids were little, she thought, okay, what room am I in the most? She said, kitchen. I'm going through the kitchen, back and forth, and doing stuff in the kitchen. So she just left the Bible out in the kitchen. Because maybe, you know, one kid, you're tired, you want to get a nap, but one kid's sleeping and two are up, and how do you do it? And in our case, one and one, you know, one sleep and the other's up, and you got to prepare for this and busy here. So she left the Bible open. And if she did not have long periods of time during the day to just sit and read the Word, she would just stop for a few seconds here, look, stop for a few seconds there. It made a difference. God is accessible, friends. God is accessible. At the same time, we will not see serious breakthroughs without a real concerted effort of saying, God, I'm seeking you. It is those who seek him earnestly, right? Hebrews eleven six. those who seek him diligently, who will find him, who will please him. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Mississippi. Daniel, welcome to the line of fire. Thanks for calling. Uh, <clears throat> hey, how you doing? Uh, thanks. Good. Hey, Daniel, are you um, speaking I, right into the phone? It's a little hard to hear you, sir. Um, hang on. Let me... Uh, yeah, I know you've been okay, on hold hello, for a while, so if we can get you to readjust, that would be great. And this way we can all hear you loud and clear. All right? All right. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I, I've got a question about my 
a buddy of mine that he he's I mean he was recently a drug addict and he was always you know getting drugs and um getting high on like methamphetamine and just hard drugs but he told me that and I've been talking to him for some time and he's told me that uh that he was saved when he was 14 and I know what this looks like but I'm just trying to figure out um uh, he he I mean I've seen him speak and the, the the fruit that comes out of his mouth I mean there's just no I'm just trying to figure out if he can still be saved but he says that um he knows he's saved by the blood of Jesus alone and I mean he'll cry after hearing like just like he's got a compassionate heart for Jesus and he gets on his I know he he says he gets on his face and just he wants me to look past his sin and, and a grown man crying to me telling me that please look past my sin. So I'm just concerned about him. I was just going to ask him for some advice and just guidance and just see what you might say about it. So, yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, so Daniel, God knows the state of his soul, right? Uh, ultimately, God knows. Uh, I reject the idea that you can be saved and live however you want to live and never repent and never show a change of life and be genuinely saved. I reject the idea of once saved, always saved. So you get born again when you're 12, you ask God to forgive you, cleanse you, you say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life, and then there is no change and you continue to live in sin the rest of your life. I question whether that person was ever saved. If they were truly saved and they've lived in sin and rebellion the rest of their lives, I would say that they have now rejected God's salvation and rejected God's lordship. That being said, and again, that's my understanding of, of Scripture, and I've seen many, especially when I lived in the South in Pensacola, many, many, many people living in overt, blatant, unrepentant rebellion and sin, and they would say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saved. You know, they're drunk with their arm around a prostitute. Oh, yeah, I'm saved, because they prayed some prayer when they were kids. No, that's, that's not salvation. Uh, Jesus changes us. Jesus saves us so that we no longer live for ourselves but we live for him, even in our weakness. That being said, the question is, is it possible he's just really struggling? In other words, he wants to follow the Lord, but he's really struggling and he needs help. Yeah. God, God's mercy is endless in that regard. And in other words, if he's saying, look, I don't need Jesus. I don't want the Lord. I could care less about following him. I'm already saved. I go to heaven anyway. That's deception. All right. But if he's saying, I, I, do, I, I need help, and I, I'm saved through the blood of Jesus, not through my work, but I need help, and I'm messed up, uh, then you have to work with him to get serious help. In other words, you find a place like Teen Challenge that has an intensive one-year program, and you get checked into a place like that. You say, okay, I, I, I recognize I need help. I recognize I'm destroying my life, and, and I know Jesus can help me. There are countless thousands, millions of former drug addicts and former alcoholics who've been saved and transformed by the blood of Jesus, who are no longer drug addicts, who are no longer alcoholics. Jesus set me free from putting the needle in my arm December 17th of 1971. I've been free from that day on. I know others, it was a process of many, many months of, of rehab and restoration and counseling and ministry, but they're free today. So what I would say is, to really help him, because drug addicts are good actors also, okay? And you don't know if it's the tears of an actor or, or the tears of someone sincerely crying out for help. 
the way to test it is to say, okay, if you really want help, let's get you help. And, and then you look up Teen Challenge or you talk to your pastor about a drug rehab program. You say, all right, let's get you checked in. I'm talking about Christian rehab. Let's get you checked in. And if you just, man, I don't want that, then you can see he's not, he's not that serious. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Would you like to study with me? and the Fire School of Ministry team right in the privacy of your own home, you can do that. We now have our entire program, which you can take at your own pace. You can earn our full intensive two-year ministry training degree. You can transfer those credits over to the King's University and other schools online and continue advanced studies from there. You can get the very best. You've heard some of our folks some of our faculty, Bob Gladstone and Keith Collins and Steve Alt and Scott Volk and, and others and Josh Peters and just tremendously gifted faculty. Your life will be tremendously impacted. It's the full audio version. So you get the full lecture of classes we've been teaching for 22 years with grads now serving God around America and all over the world, making an incredible impact for Jesus. Uh, an incredible impact, some in, in, in ways behind the scenes, some in public ways, some in countries we can't, we can't even mention because of the sensitive nature of their being there. But you'll get trained, you'll get equipped, you'll get stirred, you'll get helped. The full audio version of the classes, you can listen in your car as you drive or as you're doing work around your house. And then we've got study guides that go with each one. So you sit down with the, with the lectures, with the study guides, go through, get refreshed, uh, we also are doing online meetings with students and things like that. So, and there are practicums to carry out right there in your local church, wherever you're involved. So go to fireschoolofministry.com, fireschoolofministry.com. It is just freshly launched. You'll be one of the first students to be joining us in our online program, fireschoolofministry.com. You have to be at least 18 with a high school degree or the equivalent uh, do you feel called to ministry, ministry work? That's wonderful. Do you want to grow in the knowledge of God and go deeper in your relationship with him? Wonderful. That's, that will happen to you as well in these classes. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go over to Indiana. Ripke, welcome to the line of fire. Yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm a... I'm I'm a Hebrew Catholic to my cousin. Hebrew Catholics forces forces master master and Jews. What are your thoughts about that? Okay, so what's the difference between a Hebrew Christian and a Messianic Jew? Thank you, sir, for the question. Part of it is semantics. Part of it is just a newer way of describing something. It used to be Messianic Jew. It used to be Hebrew Christian. Now it's Messianic Jew. Part of it's just semantics. But if it's beyond semantics, if there's a distinction being made, a Hebrew Christian would technically be someone who might be uh, a Jewish believer in Jesus, but in the church, identifying in every way as a Christian, following the 
church calendars, so worship on Sunday and, and Christmas and Easter and things like that, but saying, hey, I'm a Jew who believes in Jesus, and yet very much in the, the setting of the church as a whole, a Messianic Jew, in a more technical sense, would say, as Jewish believers, we still identify as Jews, we set apart the seventh day as the Sabbath, we, we follow the biblical calendar, so we celebrate the death and resurrection of the Messiah in conjunction with Passover. So it, it, rather than a new holiday, Easter, it's death and resurrection of the Messiah in the context of Passover. Uh, and you would say we're part of a Messianic congregation or a Messianic synagogue as opposed to part of a church. Again, all part of the same body, part of the ecclesia, the church, the Messianic community. But that, that would be a difference— I identify as a Messianic Jew in the broad sense of being a Jewish believer in Jesus. There was only a part of my life where I was part of a Messianic Jewish congregation, specifically, as opposed to part of a church. So in the more narrow definition, I'm not a Messianic Jew. In the broader definition, I am a Messianic Jew. Thank you, sir, for the question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Brett in Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. How are you doing, Dr. Brown? Very well, thank um, you. I have a qu- oh, sorry, I should have let you answer. Um, I had a question about um, people who, like, have genuinely had the Spirit of God fall on their life, people who, like, have had the anointing, walked in the anointing, and either get complacent or whatever, and somehow they start to struggle in sin, or they or they start to commit things, or have committed things, kind of like the gone-back-to-the-vomit situation. And, you know, maybe they're repentant or whatever, but they don't seem to see the same grace on their life. It seems like there's a lot of scriptures that point to that being a really bad thing. Like it says, uh, you know, if it bears thorns, it's nigh under cursing. Or, you know, there's certain things I I don't like to, you know, the churches are very quick to justify and God forgives. But I I really like to get clarity from, from the scripture, you know, what to do with certain Certainly. You know, verses that seem to say that that's a really bad thing. You know? Right. So, so the Hebrews 6 passage you quoted, or the Second Peter 2, like a dog returning to its vomit, or, or the ground that gives forth thorns, uh, that's speaking of people in rebellion, people in ongoing sin, people who've turned away and continue in that path without repentance. Because if you continue in Hebrews 6, it says that, that we expect better things of you, things that accompany salvation. So, yes, there are negative consequences to sin. Uh, a minister may commit adultery in a very public way, get caught in it, and it taints his ministry, uh, or it has negative effects on his marriage, or his kids now, now question, can they really trust spiritual leaders, or can they really trust God? You know, these things can, can happen, and there are consequences. You, uh, someone is married— with kids, and they, they start getting drunk, and then they, they beat up the spouse one day, and, you know, that can have lasting consequences. So our sin does have an effect. But God does not put us in a doghouse when, when we ask for mercy and forgiveness. And the classic example is the prodigal son in Luke 15, that here he, he rebels, and, and he squanders his inheritance, his part of the inheritance, and he makes foolish, ugly, destructive choices. And when he comes to his senses and says, okay, I'm going to go back and, you know, I'll just be a servant in my father's house, the father sees him from a distance and runs out to him and embraces him and celebrates him. 
So there is great joy in heaven over a backslider who returns. There is great joy in heaven, and there is great love in the Father's heart. Now, it doesn't mean that we're totally healthy and strong overnight. In other words, we may need to get built back up in our relationship with God. We may need to be very careful about choices that we make lest we fall back into our old ways. If we were doing the work of ministry, we'll have to go through a, a process of restoration and regaining respect and, and being above reproach in our walk to be restored in ministry if that's to happen. But on a God level, he's not, well, you come back in six months and then I'll see how sincere you are. No, the clearest passage, which I encourage you to read over and over and over until it sinks into your heart or the hearts of others in this situation, Luke 15, the prodigal son, when the father sees the son coming back, he runs out to embrace him. That is the father's love. When, when God was rebuking Israel in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, he said, as often as I spoke against you, my heart longed for you. And what does Jesus say to the church in Laodicea? Right, You say, I'm rich, increased in wealth, have need of nothing, uh, but you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What does he say? You know, I counsel you to buy me gold, tried in the fire, I have uh, so that you can see. But then he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me. So Jesus is ready to have fellowship, beautiful, wonderful, no condemnation fellowship, and to wipe away the tears and to say, turn back. What does it say at the end of James, Jacob, the fifth chapter? That if you see your, your brother sin and turn away, if you bring him back, you saved the soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. Jesus died for all of that, and we need to fully embrace it. It's a trick of the devil, Brett, a trick of the devil to get us to think that we're in God's doghouse or we're going to have to earn our way back into his favor. That is absolutely not true. All right. My my fear was that there was no getting back. You know, um, that was actually more along yeah. the lines of what I was thinking. Well, that that's a lie from the enemy. Did not Jesus die for the sin of rebellion? Also, didn't he die for the sin of backsliding? Didn't he die for the for the sin of of walking away for a period of months or years? Absolutely. Look, every day we're being cleansed by the blood of Jesus, whether we know it or not. Every, every day we're being cleansed because every human being on some level falls short of God's perfection. So 1 John 1, 7 says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. God's son cleanses us from all sin. So remarkably, even when we're walking in the light, there's still sin and we're being purified on an ongoing basis. But what happens is because we're walking in the light, we turn away from that sin and we follow the Lord in repentance. And then what does he go on to say? If we say we have no sin, then we make God into a liar. His words not in us. If we confess our sins, this is ongoing. The Greek is an ongoing activity. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Read Luke 15 over and over until the reality hits us. Jesus died for sins that we commit once we're saved, even sins of rebellion, sins of deviance where we know it's wrong and we deviate from the path anyway. His mercy is everlasting. If we say no to his mercy and utterly refuse Jesus as Lord, that's one thing. But to fall short and to come back to him in repentance, 
He forgives. If Jesus tells us to forgive someone 70 times 7, how many times does God forgive us? Hey, phone lines are jammed, but if you're able to call back tomorrow, I'll do my best to take as many calls as possible.